Okay. Hi, I'm Bob Bushansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Before each of the last two elections, I asked you all that, to vote like your life depended upon you voting. I'm going to ask you again, vote. Vote as if your life depended on it, because this election is the very most important election in our lifetimes, and I really do mean it. Here we are five days before the election of a pretty decent human being and evil incarnate. The difference continuing our 242-year dem uh, democracy, or many of us winding up in concentration camps, uh, that could be the difference. Trump is by far the worst president we have ever had. He is a loser and the most inept and incompetent person to hold the office of U.S. president. He is, because of his ineptitude, responsible for tens of thousands of U.S. citizens' deaths. He has admitted that he doesn't know how to get the COVID-19 pandemic under control. Why would we want to reelect such a clueless stumble bum? Okay, that rant is over for now. We have a guest today, and he is Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College. He is normally our fifth Friday guest, so most people who listen to this show should be familiar with him. He is here to talk about what will or what might occur in five days. And then we will both be back three days after the election on the first Friday of November to see if we can make any sense of what happened on Election Day. For now, we will limit our discussion to what we think will happen and stick with just a few hot-button topics. First, will Trump win? Will the overall election be so close that five and a half partisan political hacks get to pick our next president? Or will it be a Joe Biden landslide and the five and a half deplorables wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole? Will the Dems flip the Senate? And if so, by how many seats will they net? How many seats will the Dems add in the House? How much mischief will Moscow Mitchie get into in the 77 days until inauguration? Will he pay a price for his dishonesty? Will the Dems eliminate the filibuster? Will the Dems even out the Supreme Court and the 13 appellate courts? Not only will we try to answer these questions, but we will stick our necks out and predict some of the winners. So enough from me. Let's hear from Phil. How are you feeling about where we are at this moment, Phil? Uh, hey, Bob. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, well, how do I feel? Uh, what's, it's, um, it looks like, uh, heading into the stretch, that uh, Biden has a clear advantage. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, but, you know, we know, and the polls show that pretty clearly in, in, in most of the battleground states, or at least enough of them for him to win pretty handily. But, of course, we also know that, you know, we saw the same thing in 2016 when the polls showed that Hillary Clinton would be a clear winner, uh, and the expectation was very, very high, and that didn't turn out. Uh, and that's a good word for it because a lot of it had to do with turnout, who turned out and how much. And so I think that's also going to be a big factor uh, this time around. Uh, but, I mean, boy, you know, you look, I just saw something, it was the last night of this morning, that more people have voted in Texas early than voted in the entire election last time. So at least it seems like uh, turnout's going to be really, really high. Turnout was actually almost uh, very historically high in the midterm election in 2018. So I think that more, the higher, typically, the more turnout, the better it is for Democrats, because the Democratic voter profile tends to be someone who's less likely to vote every time but we also saw republicans turn out a lot of um less uh, regular voters 
last time and looked like that's going to be the case this time too. So, um, you know, turnout's going to be a big factor and the, the accuracy of the polls is really important. But uh, I think that, you know, any clear reading of it looks like Biden's in the, in the driver's seat, um, you know, at this point. Now, what's going to happen on election night and afterwards, um, you know, who, who knows exactly. But that's, that's sort of my feeling right now is it's Biden's to lose. And uh, unless something really, really crazy happens, I think that's what's gonna, what we're going to see on Tuesday. But uh, you never know. Well, I think that the more <clears throat> that Trump opens up his mouth, the more he sticks not just his foot, he, but both feet and both hands into his mouth. And more and more people are beginning to wonder, why did I vote for this guy four years ago? Uh, because the, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 virus, is getting worse, and he's saying it's done with. Now, supposing you live in uh, Alice's Wonderland, maybe then you might think, oh, that's okay. But many people live in the real world, and they could see what's going on around them. They can see their friends and family getting sick or dying. And he's saying it's getting better or it's done with. And we have more people uh, showing up each day uh, with uh, symptoms than ever before, up to 80,000 people. And about a few months ago, it was only 40,000. So uh, I don't understand uh, his election strategy. Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear that what he wants to do is change the subject, change the subject to Hunter Biden or um, your 401k plan, which might not be a good argument right at this particular moment, uh, given the last week or two. Um, but, you know, he wants to change the subject. But I think it's, um, I mean, I think everybody can recognize, even people who really like Trump, that this idea that somehow COVID is, has been beaten and let's move on, uh, is, you know, that's just a silly thing to say. And um, completely out of touch with reality, uh, which you know is, and and you know I think it's pretty clear that Trump's gaslighting his his supporters here, and um, it just I, I agree with you. It seems like he doesn't really have much of a strategy, um, except sort of flailing about to see what he can come up with. And but but the idea that somehow COVID is behind us is just so absurd. It's really hard to imagine that any voters are gonna. Uh, believe it now they might buy it and sell it as a political argument but uh, i doubt anybody's really believing it so let's uh let's get down to brass tacks uh will trump win or lose if he wins will it be a squeaker and it has to go to the supreme court or will it be a landslide for joe biden what is your prediction at this moment well i think it's going to be a pretty pretty big landslide for biden at this point um I think, you know, I think he probably wins about 350 electoral college votes. Um, now, then I think this is uh, pretty interesting to me because, uh, you know, everyone says, it, says he has to win Pennsylvania, or it looks like Pennsylvania is really the, the tipping point, as, as people say. Um, and that's true. And uh, he really does need Pennsylvania. If he wins Pennsylvania, I don't think there's any way he can lose the election. And right now, he's up about, you know, four to seven points in the latest polls there. So he's in, a, he's in pretty good shape. Um, but it's really interesting to me because, I, you know, Biden is in a strong enough position where he could lose Pennsylvania and he could lose Florida even and lose both of them. And if he could just 
squeak out a couple of wins in some smaller states, he can still take the presidency. You know, if he can get two out of, you know, I think it's Iowa and North Carolina, uh, Arizona and Georgia, if he can pick up two of those four, he could still win even without Pennsylvania and Florida. But right now I think he's going to win Pennsylvania, and he's um, looking like he's going to be really close in Florida. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, uh, Bob, right now and say that um, Biden's going to take Georgia. What do you think about that? I agree with you. I also think that uh, when we get to uh, Senate uh, uh, elections, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But, uh, yeah, I think it looks good for the Democrats in Georgia. And what about Wisconsin? Well, Wisconsin looks like it's going to be um, good for Biden this time around. It's really interesting to me that um, you know Wisconsin and Michigan and, and Pennsylvania all look um, you know very different than they looked in uh, 2016. And I think he's you know I think Michigan is is um, a, sort of a done deal. And then Wisconsin looks pretty. He looks he looks pretty. Uh, Biden, Biden looks like he's in pretty good shape in, in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania too. So the things that Hillary let uh, slip away looks like uh, he he might uh, hold on to. So. Um, it all right now looks good for for Biden, and uh, you know we'll see what happens on Tuesday. The the big thing might be what happens on Tuesday or after Tuesday, yep. because it's not clear that we're going to have a complete result on election night. Well, here's another interesting thing: in 2016, uh, there was no incumbent. Both Hillary and Trump were vying to become uh, the president. Whereas mm-hmm. this time around, Trump has been the president for four years, and he's trying to run like he's an outsider. Right. I mean, he, that's, um, that's fairly, it's not uncommon, I will say, but yeah, he's, um, he's trying to, uh, present himself as this guy who's, you know, shaking up the system and he's an outsider and all these, you know, um, the deep state and et cetera, et cetera. But it's hard to do that because typically, you know, the a second term, uh, a, a, an election after the first term is sort of a referendum on the performance of the president. And I think if that's the ultimate basis of the, uh, you know, the result, then he's going to be in pretty big trouble. And so, I, you know, I just think he's in such a particularly bad position right now that, um, you know, he's trying, he's, he's grasping at straws a little bit. Uh, but I, I think uh, I think he does know that it's really a referendum on his performance. And, and the COVID was kind of the thing that was, you know, and it's ongoing, as you said, just a recognition that Trump really, um, he, he's fairly callous and uh, completely incompetent with regard to, to COVID. I mean, if you look at what they were, he and uh, others were saying to Bob Woodward way back at the beginning, they knew what it was going to be like or had an idea, but they just didn't do anything about it. They thought they could pretend that it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and that's really not uh, great presidential leadership. So, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, I think that, as you said, he's he hasn't performed very well, and and that's, usually that's the that's what the you know the, the election would be about is a referendum on his performance, and I think that's what we're seeing now. Well, there is a, a term for the strategy that's being used right now. It's called the ostrich uh, strategy. <laughs> Put your head in the sand, and you don't have to deal with anything, uh, and nobody will know the difference. Uh huh. Right. Right. I mean, uh, I think that's that's pretty clear that he that Trump just wants to sort of change the subject and pretend like all the the bad stuff is not happening. And you know, if you're if you're Donald Trump and you you stay in the White House and then go to Trump rallies most of the time, you might uh, have a very different 
uh, understanding of reality. And I think if it weren't for the the poll results showing how he's doing in in other places, Trump might feel like he's in pretty good shape. Um, so he's kind of he's kind of in his own little world and uh, insulated from from the out from the outside a little bit. And but I I think it's less sort of putting his head in the sand and sort of trying to figure out some way to um, to find a message that works. Uh, but but time is over. Time is out for that, and uh, I don't think he has it. Talking about insulating, uh, what about the hundreds of people that were stranded uh, in the cold and ice uh, in the Midwest at one of, after one of his rallies? There were no buses to pick those people up to take them a couple of miles to where their cars were parked. Uh, many of them had to be hospitalized. Uh, and that's forgetting about the uh, the COVID uh, situation at some of his other rallies. But this was, and a lot, many of those people were elderly. So mm -hmm. the callousness, again, is emphasized by he didn't give a rat's patoot. No, and I think, um, you know, when he, he had the, the interview, sort of, I forget who was doing the interview, but back toward the beginning of the COVID um, outbreak, you know, it is what it is, and Biden turned this into a pretty good uh, commercial, although nobody sees uh, t TV ads anymore because they're all watching Netflix. But, <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, so this was, um, uh, you know, he, he was very callous about it. It is what it is, right? I mean, he never, he does not have the ability to express uh, sympathy or empathy or, you know, any kind of emotional connection with average people, and it's really quite bizarre uh, to me. Then it, and it's, it's almost like he doesn't try or doesn't want to. So I don't know if uh, I just don't think he's capable of it. And that, it's really it's really hard to believe to be to be frank about it. Um, but he's um, you know that, that that's a really good example I think is the, how he left his supporters stranded out there in the freezing cold, needing approximately thirty buses or something to get them back. It's just it's mind boggling. It is. Okay, let's um, let's go on to the Senate right now. I think. Uh, Maybe we'll come to the Supreme Court later on, but right now, <clears throat> this is what's coming up on Tuesday. I've identified uh, 15 contests, uh, and 13 of them are Republicans that are uh, incumbents, and two of them, Democrats, are incumbents. And uh, I've, I've decided that I think seven or eight of those contests are going to be won by Democrats. They're going to flip at least seven seats from Republican to Democrat. I'm going to stick my neck way, way out there, and I'll tell you who those people are. Okay. Mark Kelly in Arizona against Martha McSally. Uh, John Hickenlooper uh, in Colorado against Cory Gardner. Um, well, I'll skip Georgia for the moment. Uh, Teresa Greenfield over Joni Ernst in Iowa. Um, Sarah uh, Gideon over Susan Collins in Maine, uh, Steve Bullock over Steve Daines in Montana, and Cal Cunningham, Cunningham over Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Now, in Georgia, I think that the Reverend Raphael Warnock is going to beat the pants off of Kelly Loeffler. And I think he's going to do that on the first round. I don't think he's going to need uh, a runoff in order to uh, get, uh, lock down that seat. Now, in Georgia, what's interesting is John Ossoff, uh, in uh, having a debate with David Perdue, called him out and out a crook on air. And uh, David Perdue didn't really respond uh, very well to that. So I think that's another possibility uh, I'm not as strong on that one, but I think that John Ossoff is going to win. 
Uh, now, of course, the Democrats have a problem in Alabama uh, uh, because Doug Jones, the Democrat who went against Roy, uh, let's see, the, the, the chief justice, the former chief justice. Yeah, Roy Moore. Roy Moore, uh, because he was a child molester. That was a pretty easy choice. But here's the problem for Tommy Tuberville. He was involved in several Ponzi schemes, not just as a victim, but as a principal. And he had the audacity to suggest that when he was elected, he should be on the, the Senate Finance and uh, Banking Committee. Is that so we can steal more money? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, Tuberville, it's, well, you know, he was the former uh, Auburn coach. So yes. He's got a lot of name recognition and a lot of goodwill for that. But uh, And so the polling I've seen on that race has been pretty pretty bad for Doug Jones, the Democrat, and I, I don't think he's going to be able to hold that. Um, but, you know, looking at your other predictions, uh, I would agree with all of them, um, except I'm I'm not – I'm not particularly sure about Bullock in Montana. I think Danes might hold on to the seat there based on the polling I've seen. Uh, and I'm not nearly as optimistic as you are about um, Revan Warnock in uh, in Georgia. I think he will win in the this first round. You know, November 3rd is going to be a first round, as you know. And, uh, you know, I think he'll pull 40%, maybe, something like that. But he's not going to get a majority. And that means that uh, mainly because Doug Collins, right, a former um, Republican rep, is also in the race. Um, and But I think I think Warnock will be ahead, but um, I don't know how he's going to do in the runoff. Uh, and that won't happen until January 5th, so we won't know uh, what the result's going to be until then. Uh, but I'm not as optimistic about that. But I do think that uh, Mark Kelly is, is looking really strong in Arizona and um, um, Hickenlooper and Sarah Gideon in, um, uh, up in the northeast there in Maine. And I think Cunningham's going to pull it out in North Carolina. Uh, the, the, ones I'm con the one I'm less uh, con uh, certain about would be uh, in Iowa against Journey, uh, Joni Ernst, but I think um, she's, the polling has look, look, mm, been looking worse for her lately. And then for, in the Purdue and Ossoff race in Georgia, I, you know, it's a toss-up, and I, have, I really don't know what's going to happen there. I think if, if Biden is, does actually pull Georgia out, then I think that's going to help. Um, it's going to help Ossoff quite a bit, and uh, he might be able to, to win there. Um, so, yeah, I think Democrats are going to need, I mean, are going to get on net after, you know, losing Jones in Alabama, you know, at least at least four or five seats. So uh, I think there's, you know, the chance of the, the, the uh, Democrats flipping the Senate is, you know, about 100 percent, in my opinion, uh, unless there's some, something crazy happens. So a uh, really, really big year for Democrats uh, in the Senate, and we'll you know, give them a, a nice majority. And this is really the big problem, the big problem the Democrats have had with Trump is that, you know, you can have the House, but the Senate really does a lot of the key stuff on appointments and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, so having the Senate will be huge for the Democrats in terms of um, judicial appointments and, um, you know, other kinds of things, So, <clears throat> which we'll probably talk about um, later. So I'm, I'm with you. I think the Democrats are going to take it. I think you're more optimistic than I am, though. I usually am, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, and the one, one um, a Democratic uh, um, office holder that I didn't mention was Gary Peters in Michigan. He is the incumbent. And uh, John James, the Republican candidate, uh, seems to be fading because there was some financial improprieties that were raised, and that's the same for, for Collins in Georgia. Uh, so many Republicans seem to have 
a lot of financial shenanigans from their past that is coming to haunt them now. So who knows? Now, here's one other thing I'd like to add to the mix. So those of you who are listening, you've heard us make some Senate uh, predictions. I'd like to make this offer to you, the listening audience. I would like you to send us an email at dj at kzyx.org and list your predictions. And those who have come closest to what actually happens, I will be more than happy to send you a Politics A Love Story t-shirt. I know that may not be a big incentive, but we will also mention your name on the air. So uh, here it is again, dj at kzyx.org. Write your predictions down. And if you want to write down prediction for president or anything else, uh, we'll take that into consideration. So thank you. Okay, so um, the uh, there is a Biden landslide. Uh, the Democrats take over the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell holds his seat because it's very unlikely that Amy McGrath is going to uh, unseat him. But how much mischief can uh, Moscow Mitchie uh, get into in 77 days until the inauguration? What do you think might happen, Phil? Well, um, that's a really good question. Um, I know that, um, you know, if if the the Republicans are not, or if the Republicans are not able to hold the Senate, then they're going to do whatever they can to fill as many judicial vacancies as they can. But they've pretty much done that already, um, and you know, as pushing through the Supreme Court to Justice Amy Coney Barrett, right? I mean, this was even have to, had to happen before the election. Um, so I think there's a ruthlessness there, as you know, that uh, you know he could do um, whatever he what he could possibly do. But I think in terms of the uh, judicial appointments, they've kind of um, filled up the bench. And then um, without the House, he really can't create uh, any major legislation. So I'm I'm interested to hear what you think he's going to uh, do in terms of creating mischief, but I don't, I don't see much. Uh, I don't see much ability for him there uh, after uh, after the you know after December, uh, November third, assuming that uh, the Senate changes hands, because he just doesn't have the the uh, institutional you know capability. Well, here's another wrinkle that uh, I just thought of. So Trump has made the suggestion a few times that if he loses, he's going to leave. And why would he do that? That's because even if he resigned and allowed Pence to pardon him, that's only for federal crimes. And yet there are a whole slew of state or city or local-based crimes that are being investigated and will probably prove correct because the New York Times has exposed so many financial misdealings on Trump's part. Uh, that And what about... Uh, the emoluments clause. Well, that's a federal thing, so that wouldn't make any difference. But all those things that Trump did in New York State, uh, those would haunt him. And even if there were no big uh, jail sentences for each one, if they were put end to end consecutive sentences, he could be in jail for another lifetime. So as he said, he might leave. He could get on a plane. He could, uh, uh, what, lease a plane and go and maybe to Brazil where his buddy Bolsonaro will uh, hold him up there. There is no extradition with Brazil. So if that were to happen, uh, 
would the 25th Amendment go into effect because Trump wasn't there to continue in office? Would Pence automatically be elevated? And would he be giving Mitch McConnell direction? So your idea is that uh, Trump would, would bail out before the end of his term and Pence would take over and then pardon Trump for any any federal crimes. Yeah, boy, um, if there were anybody other than Donald Trump, I would say that's just completely absurd. But it's, it's certainly possible that could happen. Uh, there's no no doubt to me that um, there's been significant violation of the Emoluments Clause. That Trump's been, you know, making a lot of money from his uh, stint as president. And uh, so so I think that there are some crimes there and, and other crimes, but Pence could, could get, you know, could, could pardon him for those federal crimes. But I know at the state level, as you're saying, in New York, um, you know, there's the question of his taxes and this ongoing court battle about whether the New York DA can um, can get those, get his tax records and so forth. But it doesn't matter now because the New York Times has pretty much released all that information. Um, and it's, it's quite shocking um, it, that, uh, you know, he called himself the king of debt, when he was running for um, election, and in fact he is, he's the king of debt in terms of the um, United States uh, Treasury, and he's also the king of debt in terms of his own uh, business uh, practices, and that comes through. I mean, really, Trump is one of these guys who, he's dead broke, he's flat broke, but because he has all these um, financial machinations, right, he's able to sort of kick his debt from, you know, down the road or transfer it from one one entity to another and, you know, sort of... um, you know, surf across the whole thing, but uh, he's really, in terms of his sort of selling himself as this amazing business person, I think his taxes show quite clearly he's not. The other thing they also show is that he doesn't pay any taxes. Um, you know, for I think in the, um, 2016 or 2017, he paid no uh, federal taxes, and that's not the only time that's happened recently. And he's paying more in taxes to other foreign governments than he's paying to the United States. So, He's a really good example also of the way that people that have a lot of wealth or wealth on paper um, are able to get away with, um, you know, paying a lot less in tax in terms of relative to their income than most normal people. And, um, you know, the Republicans have been creating a tax code and, a, and uh, you know, an economic policy program that's, that's really you know, sort of pushed, pushed that agenda quite significantly, and Trump's a great example of it. So... If Trump left, uh, what would be the incentive for Pence to uh, to pardon him and his kids, I would guess, uh, although that's never been mentioned, but they have committed a whole bunch of crimes as well. Well, that's true. I think they would have to be on the uh, on the list um, for the for pardoning. Um, gosh, I don't know what what would be in it for Pence that he would uh, be able to put on his resume that he was president for, you know, 20 days or something. <laughs> uh, right. I don't know. Um but um, you know he does owe Trump for his uh, position as, as VP. I think he it will put him into the into sort of first position in terms of nominee for 2024, uh, assuming that uh, Trump doesn't get reelected, or even if Trump does get reelected, and so he owes Trump a little bit there. Um, but I'm I'm not sure there's a, there's an overwhelming. Uh, uh, you know, rationale or desire for for that to happen. I don't see, but Trump doesn't need his permission. Trump can just you know bail out, and P- Pence has no choice. So I don't think it matters. And it certainly doesn't matter to Trump whether there's anything in to, in it for Pence. So let me reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics: A Love Story. Our guest today is Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College, and I'm your host Bob Bashansky, and we're discussing what might happen. Uh, in the next five days and after, 
uh, because of the election on Tuesday. So we're going through a whole host of situations. Now, here's a here's something I want to raise, Phil. And neither of us are attorneys, so we don't know if this is even possible. But if Trump just left without giving any direction to anyone, including Pence, and uh, he went to a, a extradition safe country, would Pence automatically take over? I mean, does the 25th Amendment allow for a, con a, 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 a sitting president to escape uh, the uh, paying for his crimes? So therefore, if Pence were to say, well, I'm taking over because uh, uh, the president is not available. Well, if I were the Democrats, I would contest that because it's not specifically laid out in the 25th Amendment because we've never had to deal with something like this. So that, if it was 20 days from uh, the point that Trump left until the inauguration, uh, well, that could be tied up in court maybe for those 20 days, and therefore we have nobody running uh, the country unless, uh, if there's nobody there, would the Speaker, would, would the, um, let's see, yeah, the Speaker of the House take over? Well, let's see. So I think if, you know, if Trump just sort of took off and didn't resign, then there would be the need for, um, you know, so I don't know exactly how the 25th Amendment talks about it, but the ability to make a determination that the president's no longer fit or unable to carry out the duties of his office. And in that case, I think it's pretty clear that the vice president would, would um, you know, would be first in line there. And, you know, I don't, I don't really see how we would get past that i mean i don't i don't think there's any legal case to be made you determine that uh trump is not um you know is no longer capable or not able to do it and trump i mean and, and then uh you know pence will become president so i don't see there's much of a legal case uh, to to or to go against him and i think if biden has won the election then you know it's really a non-issue uh, other than for for trump and his and his legal potential legal troubles but i, I don't i don't see it well, okay, let's go to the House then. Um, do you think that the Democrats will pick up seats in the House as well? I think so. I mean, uh, what I've seen, I've looked at uh, some of the um, projections online and so forth, and I think, you know, my best guess is they'll probably end up with something like with 15 to 20 seats. My specific guess is about 17, 17 seats. I think they'll have a 250 uh, 250 Democrats in the House, giving them a, a pretty significant majority, um, and so be even able, even uh, you know, can even strengthen the majority they already have. Um, and you know, in the House, there's there's a great deal of uh, the great deal of the leadership has much more ability to control the agenda and determine what happens uh, in the House relative to the Senate. So the Democrats are pretty much uh, going to be able to do whatever they want. Uh, in the House, and they're they're definitely going to pick up seats. So, you know, if, if Biden wins and the Senate flips, I mean, we could see a situation like we saw in 2008, or for for the Democrats, or in 2016 for the Republicans, where, our, um, you know, you could have all three, or you know, both houses of Congress and the presidency. In which case, the Democrats would be really in the driver's seat to to do what they wanted for a couple of years. Usually, that's as long as it lasts. Um, but yeah, I think they're going to pick up seats in the House. It's not even going to be, um, you know, the House. The difference between the Democrats and Republicans is not even going to be close. And so the, the House is going to be the Democrats are going to do whatever they want in the House. Um, I'm not sure it's going to get to two thirds. I haven't actually didn't calculate that. But um, you know, for things like a constitutional amendment, for example, but uh, I don't think it matters um, uh, because the Senate's not going to not going to get there by any means. You're right. 
Um, so um, let, we're going on an assumption that the Democrats are going to win in a landslide on Tuesday. That's not just the presidency, but the Senate seats, the House seats. So assuming that that is true, uh, do you think that the Democrats are going to eliminate the filibuster? Well, I would think so. Yeah, I think that the filibuster is gone. I think, you know, as soon as as soon as soon um, the Democrats uh, were really forced to eliminate the filibuster on lower court nominees, the uh, circuit and appeals courts, I think at that point that uh, we knew that if the Democrat or the Republicans took power, they were going to uh, also take their whack at the at the filibuster and they did and eliminated it for potential supreme court uh, for, for supreme court nominees and um so i think the democrats you know are going to are going to drop it um i think that it's really not if the democrats want to pursue a police reform agenda or a civil rights agenda or a voting rights agenda any of that kind of stuff it's going to be really difficult for them to uh, explain to the public and to democratic supporters how um, it's okay for the Republicans to use this sort of segregationist era tactic, um, you know, to to thwart civil rights and voter rights legislation uh, in the twenty in the twenty first century. So I don't think they can they can explain keeping it around. I don't think it does them any any good necessarily. No, it doesn't do the Democrats any good, and it's not going to be there. I don't think when they go back uh, into the minority or assuming that they get the majority this time. And so I just, I think it's, it's, uh, it, the filibuster's done, but I like it. I mean, I think, uh, I like it being gone. Uh, I, I'm kind of in, I'm kind of into democracy and majority rule, uh, not supermajority rule, and, uh, which is one of the reasons I, uh, I hate the, the, um, rules about, uh, like referendums in California. But, um, you know, it should be a, it should be a majoritarian system. You get a majority, you win, not, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to get, uh, three fifths or what have you. So, uh, and just produce regular, regular business, you know, and so I think the filibuster is gone. I think it should be gone. And I don't think it's ever coming back. So one of the reasons for that would be to make sure that uh, the first bill passed in the new House with a Democratic majority was H.R. 1, which made uh, voting much more Democratic. And then there was H.R. 5, the renewal of the Voting Rights Act, which were, of course, shot down in the Senate. If you want those two to pass, you at least have to get rid of the filibuster. But then that... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you wanted to say something. That's okay. Well, no, I just I was going to say, yeah, that's right. I mean, you're going to have to get rid of the filibuster in order to really um, take care of any significant legislation in the Senate. And I think H.R. 1 and H.R. 5 are critically important and, uh, you know, necessary for, for you know, the comp- public confidence in elections and the future of the country. So, um so yeah, I think that those, in order to get those things done, or other big legislation, you're just going to have to get rid of it because you, you, you know, you know, the Democrats are only going to have a, a slim majority, uh, assuming they do. Yeah. And that brings us to what might be the last topic, but we're going to spend quite a bit of time on it, and that's whether to even out the Supreme Court and the other appellate courts, because that's another impediment to H.R. 1 and, and H.R. 5, because when it gets to the Supreme Court, we have a rogue element there that is unlike almost any other Supreme Court we've had in the past. They've already telegraphed that they are against uh, equal voting amongst the citizens of this country. And if you look at any purported democracy, it is all about letting people who are eligible to actually vote. And yet, it seems as though the Republicans, including those five and a half 
partisan hacks on the Supreme Court want to suppress people's ability to vote because they see the handwriting on the wall. If people are allowed to vote, why would they want to vote for a Republican? <laughs> well, I did a, I did a recent symposium uh, talk on, on some of this, and uh, I, I think that uh, the Republicans, as you suggest, see the writing on the wall, a big demographic change in the United States, one reason why I think Georgia is very much in play and Texas will be in play the next time around. Um, so the Republicans see the writing on the wall. They know that the way that they win elections is by keeping people from voting, because, uh, again, usually people who are less likely to vote um, are going to have a more Democratic profile. So, you know, they do things like voter ID laws, and they uh, really make sure and go after um, registration lists and all that kind of thing. Um, why would anyone vote for the Republicans? Well, I think you're, you're you know, because they're anti-democracy, if you want to put it that way. Well, I mean, I think Republican partisans would vote for the Republicans, and they think this is a, would be a good idea. Um, but, but it does call into question the uh, commitment of Republicans to, um, you know, to democracy and the basic tenets of it, of letting people vote and making and facilitating the vote instead of making it more difficult, right? I mean, the Republicans right now, led by Trump, they want to make it very difficult to vote absentee, even in the COVID, um, in this COVID environment. They want to make it, uh, um, they want to limit the amount of time after the election that ballots can come in. They're going to, they're going to send people all around the country to uh, sort of, um, watch over the ballot counting and all that to try to, um, you know, to eliminate as many votes as possible. So, yeah, I mean, this is really striking that you'd have a major American political party interested in uh, keeping people from voting. Um, but it's, it's, it's a partisan thing, as we know, and, um, you know, but I think it's not, it's not going to help them in the, in the long run. What's going to help them in the long run is appealing to voters uh, that aren't currently part of the Republican coalition, and that means changing Republican policies. You know, they had an, this uh, sort of post-mortem after 2012, and it talked about doing some of these things, uh, but that uh, the Republican National Committee did, and that was shot down, uh, or at least it was not res the the candidates were not responsive to it, and sort of Trump took them in the opposite direction, and now they're stuck. I mean, this is how they're going to have to win elections if they can, and uh, I think it's I think it, it it's not even gonna, even going to work after the next couple of uh, cycles. So why would people vote for them? You know, they vote for them because they agree with their, their policies. But I think that those people, that that group of people is shrinking relative to other groups in the electorate, and it's not a sustainable position. So it's it's striking that in the long term this is not going to benefit the Republicans, even though they might squeak out a few victories here and there, and some important victories based on this you know, sort of policy, which we have seen in the last few election cycles. So, Phil, you've been a part of this show almost from the beginning. I think it was the third or fourth show that you were uh, my guest. And that was in uh, February of 2016, I believe. Mm. So over the years, uh, and especially within the last two years, after I interviewed Aaron Belkin, the executive director of an organization called Pack the Court, um, I started to espouse the idea of increasing the number of jurists or justices on the Supreme Court, and uh, you poo-pooed that idea in the very beginning. Now, you can't pick up a newspaper, you can't go onto a website without seeing four or five articles about just that. Uh, I think it's become critical. In fact, I've got spread out on the desk in front of me. Uh, so here's one thing from Fox. The case for stripping the Supreme Court of its power, now that's slightly different, 
then there's another. Uh, the, the other tool Democrats have to rein in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is begging for a legitimacy crisis, and Emily Bazelon, writer for the New York Times, how to fix the Supreme Court. Uh, so, why would that be necessary? Because if you want to get anything done, uh, you're going to have to change the tone and tenor. Also, you have to do it at the appellate level. And here's the good thing. There is nothing in the Constitution that suggests how many members of any of those courts I mentioned that are locked in stone. So yes, since 1869, when uh, Grant made the number nine after it had been as low as six, it's been that way for, say, 150 years. Well, that's not enough to say that it's uh, forever. Uh, it could be changed. And so can the appellate courts. And I think that's another thing that Biden is going to have to consider more, more deeply than he was before. Well, I think you're right. I mean, um, in terms of, the, of me saying, Bob, you know, you, you're 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 way off base here, um, and also about whether Biden has to really um, seriously consider this or not. Um, okay, so a couple things. Uh, first, about Biden, I think that um, he's he's talking about maybe let's have a commission to maybe look into the Supreme Court, maybe. And uh, I, I don't think he I don't think he really has the. The, the gumption to go after the court. I don't think that it certainly won't be something that happens in his, at the beginning of his term. I don't believe. Um, but I think that Biden has this misplaced, in my view, belief that somehow if he brings a couple of Republicans into his cabinet, that that's going to he's going to be able to heal the rift in the country and uh, that kind of thing. And I think that's wishful thinking. But anyway, back to the to, to court packing, as they call it. Uh, I'm still I'm still not with you, Bob. I think that. Uh, it's not a not a bad idea if the Democrats were able to do this for, you know, it would last for for two years, four years, eight years, whatever. Um, but when the Republicans get back in power, uh, they're going to um, they're going to also court pack the court and um, sort of water down the the Democratic majority there or, or eliminate it. And then when the you know Democrats get back in there and so and so forth and so on. And so what you're going to end up with is like a mini super legislature and uh, in, in, in the Supreme Court building. You know uh, who knows how many justices. Uh, and that's the big problem for most of these potential reforms for the court, I think, is that, you know, there they are things where the Democrats could do something now, and the Republicans could come back and undo it or do something different later, and it just goes back and forth, back and forth. And um, I'm, I'm not sure what benefit there is in that in the long term uh, for democracy. But uh, right now, I think that you know, you're looking at a six to three conservative majority on the court, and, you know, most people on the left think, wow, something's got to be done about this, or um, you know, some of the, the major cases that are going to come up um, on, you know, voter rights and civil rights and all that kind of stuff is real uh, abortion rights. Um, you know, the the conservatives are going to going to be very much in charge there. And what do you do about it? Well, you could you could pack the court. Didn't work for Roosevelt when he had massive majorities in both houses. Uh, it's not going to work for Biden, I don't think, either. And so maybe you need another solution. Well, here's um, a couple of things. Number one. Uh, what would spur Biden to action is if, with uh, uh, Barrett on the court, they vote down the F Affordable Care Act. Biden was a part of that process. And his mentor, uh, Obama, is who proposed it. And uh, Biden saw through uh, many of the, uh, the elements of that when he was the vice president. 
So if that was shot down and 26 million people lose their health care and their uh, pre-existing condition clause that allows them to get reasonably priced insurance, I think the only way to overcome that is to add people to the court. Well, I mean, um, that's the that's probably one of the most efficient ways to do it. Um, although it would take some time to get those uh, get the legislation passed, get them on the on the court. Um, but I mean, you could also do something. I know other. I know you've uh, mentioned this before. You can um, change the juris- jurisdiction of the court. I mean, there's no reason why. There's nothing in the Constitution that says there's the, what is it called the exceptions clause when it talks about the court that um, it's really up to Congress what the court's jurisdiction is going to be, other than stuff that's specifically laid out in the Constitution. So that could be one way a Congress could do pretty much immediately and say. The court, the Supreme Court, doesn't have jurisdiction over um, those questions, and see if you know, uh, and that could work. Uh, I, but I, <laughs> but again, and I think that would work. It would be very quick. Also, it wouldn't be something that um, it wouldn't be as complicated long term as doing the you know packing the court, and it also would you know sort of protect those issues. But uh, I think it's got the, one of the same problems of court packing, which is that. You know, it could just be undone later by another Congress and so forth. And so are we going to have a, a situation where the Supreme Court can't really rule on any important cases? And so I think that one that one doesn't work that well either. Um, so I'm still not happy. <laughs> what else you got? Well, uh, so what we're talking about, actually, is Article 3 of the Constitution, which gives Congress the power to determine what the Supreme Court will rule upon. And in Marbury versus Madison in 1803, John Marshall decided he wasn't satisfied with that. He wants to rule on everything. And there was no Congress that challenged that in these 217 years since that was done. So that's part of it. But on the other hand, um, how are you going to get anything done um, unless something, some drastic action is taken on the part of uh, Congress? And the biggest knock against Democrats is that they are spineless. They're, they are so wishy-washy, and part of it is because they cover a huge uh, constituency, and each one is pulling in a different direction. But in order to overcome the stubbornness and the lawlessness of the Republicans over these last few years, there's got to be some backbone shown. Well, I I completely concur with that. I think that's a big knock on the Democrats. Um, I think that's that's sort of the basis of my thinking about Biden and his sort of. Um, I don't I don't think he has the, you know, he has the the stomach to go to go for for all this. Maybe he does. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's the the one thing that you're talking about that is that's really important it could be resolved with a couple of these methods of changing the court is to do something immediately and you know court packing could be done pretty quickly you know adding members the the jurisdiction thing could be done pretty quickly i don't think those are the best solutions uh, longer term but i think that those would be the ones that could happen immediately and and i'm sort of um but boy i just i think that uh, maybe the jurisdiction stripping part is better than um, you know, adding justice to the court, because I think once that happens, there's just no end to it. Um, although I do believe that the problem for the Supreme Court is that it's anti-majoritarian in that Democrats have won the popular vote in the presidency six out of the last seven elections. Um, the, the people, the, the Senate that has appointed these recent justices do not represent a majority of the public. They represent um, something usually between 55 and 57 percent of all 
of the population in the United States based on the, the states that they represent. So, and the you know the the problem is the Republicans um, are you know using this minority power to to grow the court when it when it and it becomes non-responsive to majoritarian will, and I think that something must be done about that. I just uh, and I think those two the court packing thing and stuff could be pretty quick quickly done, uh, particularly with um, you know with complete democratic rule, but. Uh, I worry about what happens down the line because I do think that you could end up with 30 justices on the Supreme Court, and then all of a sudden you have, like I said, this sort of mini super legislature that just decides, uh, makes laws instead of Congress. So I, that that concerns me. I think there's a fallacy in that thinking. Mm-hmm. That's assuming that everything is going to remain the same on the Republican side. But there's a factor here that is uh, exemplified by the Lincoln Project and those hardcore Republicans that are for Biden, for the change in the Senate uh, to Democratic rule, uh, so that if the Democrats were to be able to increase the size of the appellate courts and the Supreme Court, it would be a long time before the the Republicans, in the form that they exhibit now, will be able to take power again. What George uh, Conway and uh, the other members of the Lincoln Project are looking to is to have a reconstituted Republican Party that is an equal partner, or not necessarily a partner, but an equal foe to the Democrats. This is something else that I have uh, been talking about for a number of years. In order for this particular uh, democratic republic, a representative uh, democracy, to be able to succeed, it needs two. We're not going to go into a parliamentary form of government, but it needs two strong parties. And right now, we don't have that. We have one a voter-suppressing party, and we have one vying to become uh, the dominant party. But what we need is two equally strong and equally fertile uh, parties. The, the, the Republicans are bereft of ideas at the moment. And what George Conway and his group are looking to do is to reconstitute the Republican Party so that it has ideas, so that there is competition in elections. Right now, there isn't because of the extreme partisan gerrymandering in some places. So to, con- to consider that things are going to remain the same and that's why the, the Republicans are going to come back and then the Democrats, that's not going to happen. Well, I mean, you, that's, a, that's an interesting, interesting perspective. I think you, you could be right about that. I mean, I think that you're, you are going to see, and you're seeing it right now, as you talked about with the Lincoln Project, this sort of schism in the Republican Party, these sort of, um, rep- sort of traditional Republicans that are interested in, you know, smaller government and, and that kind of thing, but uh, they're not really interested in um, making nice with white supremacists and that kind of stuff. And so, but I, so I think there's this real schism that, that you've, you're identifying here. Um, if if the if the um, those traditional Republicans sort of take the party in that direction, what happens to these um, you know these more um, more partisan Republicans? I, I'm not I'm not sure what happens to them. Then maybe they just um, with a two party system though. I mean they don't really have much choice and they're going to stick with the Republican Party. Um, but I think it's possible that the Republican Party um, is sort of becomes uh, make, has a you know, it's sort of divided into two 
sort of sectors of the party, and I think it could potentially just fall apart unless it really makes an effort to expand its its base. The problem then is when the, it expands its base to other kinds of people, uh, it loses some of those real hardcore uh, Republicans now. But again, where are they going to go, Bob? And uh, so I think that's going to keep the Republicans competitive, but are they going to be able to maintain, to win enough elections to uh, to stay in power? Um, or, you know, I don't think that's I think that's certainly possible that that, that won't happen, um, you know, but they're going to have plenty of regional strength, if nothing else, and it's certainly possible that they could, um, you know, get back in charge of the Senate at some point in the future. I mean, people were saying the same thing right up until 2016, and, uh, you know, the, the Republicans, are, you know, have control of the Senate. They maintained it, even when the Democrats took the House. Things are looking worse for the Republicans if you look over the horizon, but the idea that somehow we're going to have a one-party system, uh, where the Republicans are never going to be able to pack the court when they get power, I just you know doesn't doesn't seem like that's a that's a uh, a likely outcome to me. What <laughs> so. about what about the Democratic Party? There's a schism there right now. The progressives are maintaining sort of a quiet period, but once uh, Biden wins, there's going to be hard lobbying to get some of their people into the cabinet. They're going to be pushing for. Uh, progressive ideas to get promoted by the new president. So the Democratic Party has been experiencing this for a long time, and yet it's still viable enough that it may take both the presidency and the Senate. On the other hand, uh, when parts, where, where are the Whigs today, by the way, and where are some of those other groups? They just fall by the wayside, or they don't vote anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the Whigs, uh, where are they? The good question. Um, well, you know, Bob. I personally, I I think we should have a parliamentary system. I think we should have a multi-party democracy um, of some kind. Um, but you know, so this is so basically what happens. What will happen for the Republicans is that when they find themselves on the other on the losing side enough to where they can't maintain competitiveness with their current coalition, they will adjust. They will move to the middle on some of those things, and they'll survive. It's a two-party system. Um, and in some ways, that's unfortunate to me. Um, are the Democrats going to be able to stay together? Well, that's a good question. I think progressive been really, progressives have been really chafing, not only under Trump, of course, but even under previous Democratic administrations. I think Biden is not one of them. Uh, he's very centrist and maybe even conservative in some ways. And so the the progressives are not going to be happy. I don't think he's going to make them very happy. Uh, what concessions will he offer to them? Uh, well, he had a, had lunch with Bernie Sanders. Uh, does, does that count? I mean, I don't I don't know. I think progressives are still going to be very frustrated. Uh, but he, but are they going to are they going to find a home somewhere else other than the Democratic Party that's actually going to be a competitive party? I, I don't think so. So what I do think is going to happen for the for the Democrats though is that you're going to have this new crop of Democrats, the younger Democrats, and the younger voters. In fact, are much more liberal or progressive than uh, the previous generation of Democrats and previous generations of voters and i think that i think that's going to push the party to the left quite a bit and it's actually going to push the republicans to the left a little bit too but i think the when there's new blood in the party and the party leadership uh, and in elected offices i think you will see a party that's more progressive but that won't happen you know this time around and there are a lot of new young voters that are voting in large numbers this time but here's another uh, reason why the democrats are going to maintain power for a while 
the two new states that are going to be created, the Washington D state and the Puerto Rican state. That's four more senators and maybe three or four more House members, uh, or they'll reduce some of the larger states' uh, numbers uh, in order mm -hmm. to accommodate them. But that's, that's one of the reasons why uh, the Republicans were so incensed about making sure that they retain control so that the Democrats couldn't elevate, because there is already legislation in the House to make states out of both D.C. and Puerto Rico. Well, I have to, frankly, have to admit that I don't know what that process is, it looks like. But um, typically in the past, you know, when Alaska and Hawaii were added in the middle of the 20th century, not sure exactly the year, but um, there's usually this sort of, okay, we'll add one, you know, that benefits this party, and we'll add another that benefits that party. So they're usually done in pairs, or at least that's my the, the way I remember it or think about it. But um, And so to get two states that are going to add four new Senate seats for the Democrats and four new electoral or, you know, potentially 12 or whatever electoral college votes or something. Um, I mean, I guess if the Democrats can push it through, then that would be great for them long term. Um, well, you remember what Mitch McConnell said. <laughs> yes. When you have the presidency and the Senate, you do what the hell you want. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you do you do what you want in terms of the courts. You do what you want in terms of appointments and all that. Absolutely. Um do you do you add Puerto Rico and D.C.? I think D.C., you can make a really, really strong case for D.C. I think Puerto Rico will be much more of a sort of a lightning rod issue. Um, you have less than a million people in D.C. It's about 860,000. You have three right. and a half million in Puerto Rico. And here's the well, weird thing. They can't vote for president if they stay on the island of Puerto Rico. They move to the mainland and they could vote for president. That makes no sense. And, and well, it makes no sense. That's right. And, and the people in Washington, D.C. don't have any representation in Congress, and that doesn't make any sense either. Right. Um, so, you know, they should certainly uh, have that. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're convincing me, Bob. Maybe Puerto Rico <laughs> should become a state. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, we're getting near the end of uh, our time, Phil. Is there any last uh, 30 seconds that you would like to impart some wisdom to our listeners? Well, the wisdom is that, um, you, you and, and people can hold me to account, I think that Biden will take Georgia. Um, you, you do too, Bob, so you're, gonna, you're on the hook also. Yep. Um, but I think the, the court's a big, thing, a big deal. There's lots of ways to do it besides packing the court. Maybe we can talk about that later if Biden wins. Uh, but um, I'm really looking forward to Tuesday and to our conversation next Friday. Do you think it'll be over by Friday, or do you think that it'll still be hanging? Well, I think it really, it's, what's really crazy is that I believe it will, a lot of it will be up to the media, uh, to evaluate how their turnout models. And if they call states, um, on election night, that will be huge. Uh, I don't think everything will be resolved on election night. And the more that's not resolved, the better off it's going to be for Trump, who's going to be able to claim fraud and so forth. And I think some recent commentary and Supreme Court decisions suggest that, uh, some members of the court also, uh, are in, Trump's uh, corner on this, and that could be very dangerous. Uh, but but I, my, my hunch is that it will be over on election night. Okay, so I want to thank Phil Worf, a political science professor at Mendocino College, for being my guest today and handicapping what might happen on Tuesday. We'll be back next Friday to talk about the results of Friday, if there are any that we could really talk about. We'll talk about other things, if not that. So thank you, Phil. Uh, we'll be back next Friday. Uh, see ya. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bob. Okay. So, uh, 
Next Friday, it'll be Phil and I, and then uh, two weeks from then, will be Alexander Kesar, uh, and his book is Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? And following uh, this show is The Wondrous World of Music uh, with Gordon Black. So stay tuned, and I'll see you next week.